You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. We've all got questions, and fear is often either the root or the result of some of those questions. And these days, uh, we love to attach special names to our fears. I guess that way we can diagnose them as illnesses and give them the proper drug to, to fix it, right? And uh, if you don't think some of these are crazy, you, you tell me. Here's, here's a few of these. Ergophobia is an abnormal and persistent fear of work. See, my generation just called that laziness, but you know, got to come up with a fancier word for it. Tympanophobia, Keith, is the fear of drums. Thank God you do not suffer from that. Chronophobia is the extreme fear of time. And I know a lot of long-winded preachers who suffer with this, this issue. Uh, ecclesiophobia is the fear of churches. I commend you all for overcoming that fear this morning. Thanatophobia is the intense fear of death. If you ever wonder where Thanos on the Marvel comics got his name. Nomophobia, this one's a good one. Nomophobia is the fear of laws. See, we used to just call that rebellion and disobedience, but apparently that's just nomophobia. And then one more, autophobia or monophobia. That's the fear of being alone. Which begs the question, are you talking about being alone in your house in the daytime or alone at night in a haunted mansion? See, I think those would be very different. The point is, we got a lot of fears, don't we? And I could go on. There's unbelievable number of names for fears. Uh, but we're just a kind of a spooky people. There was a, um, a passenger who got in the back of a taxi and they were going down the road and the, and the, the, the passenger wanted to ask the, the cab driver a question. So he, you know, he leaned up and gently tapped him on the shoulder. Well, the cab driver screamed at the top of his lungs, swerved across several lanes of traffic, almost hit a bus, jumped the curb, hits a garbage can and slams on his brakes just in time to stop before he hit a telephone pole. Well, you know, you can hear, still hear the, the garbage can rolling, the, the car still rocking back and forth. And they both just kind of take a deep breath. And the cab driver leans back over the seat. He said, I am so sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. He said, well, you know, the passenger's like, well, my bad. I, you know, I apologize. I didn't, I didn't know you'd freak out just because I tapped you on the shoulder. You know, and he's like, well, no, no, no. Cab driver's nose. He said, that's on me. See, this is my first day driving a cab. And as a matter of fact, you're my first passenger. See, for the last 30 years, I've been driving a hearse. <laughs> I might have been a little spooked myself, right? Well, we, we're gonna, today we're going to see a bunch of jumpy folks. And at first glance, we'll say, well, yeah, yeah, I'd be jumpy too if I was in that situation. But Jesus is going to respond to mankind's fear with a profound but simple question. And it's a question we're asking, he's asking you this morning. Why are you so afraid? And that's the, the question that I believe we're going to answer this morning. So let's stand in honor of God's word and read Matthew 8. We'll start in verse 18 and read through verse 27. These are the words of God. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd 
around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up saying, saying save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? May God bless the reading of his word. I want to ask Chris Jones to come and ask God's blessings on our message today. Chris. <laughs> He's playing double duty this morning. <laughs> he said, is there a praying in public phobia? <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful day you've made for us. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. And I thank you for the love that we have amongst us because of you. Amen. Father, I pray for my brother Wimp. Please speak through him today and give him the right words to say so that we may grow in the knowledge of you. And Father, if there's anyone here, anyone here that is not saved, that they'll get saved today. They'll come to know you. I ask these things, your sons and my prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Y'all can be seated. Thank you, Chris. Well, Jesus asks a simple question in a pretty scary circumstance. Why are you so afraid? And many of us are familiar with uh, the famous World War II tank commander, General George Patton, who said, courage is fear holding on a minute longer. And I would just add to that, courageous faith is fear being extinguished altogether by a storm controlling savior. So just how are we to remain calm while we're literally in the middle of a storm. Well, Mark also records this same story in Mark 4, verse 37. He says the boat was already filling up with water, right? So having faith while the boat is sinking, literally, seems unreasonable, doesn't it? Kind of seems unreasonable, illogical. But remember, Jesus has a lesson plan for our good. And the first thing we see in his lesson plan this morning is the separation of his true disciples. The separation of his true disciples. The conversation that's leading up to the miraculous calming of the storm is Jesus clarifying the cost of following him. Now, we do have uh, heavenly rewards coming to us, praise God, as Christians uh, in the future, but God never said that the earthly path of discipleship was an easy path. He never says that. So before the storm ever happens, Jesus is giving them a verbal warning to count the cost. He's saying, listen, there's always sacrifice in service to God. There is a cross to bear, be it light or heavy, but you've got one. So Jesus gives two filters that'll help separate the true followers from the fair weather Christians, right? And the first of these is homelessness must be on the table. 
homelessness must be on the table of your faith. Now, we're not talking about homelessness by choice or addiction or, you know, maybe being born into abject poverty, though we, we're sorry for those that are in that. We're talking about a chosen lifestyle of insecurity and sacrifice. That's what faith is. That's what following Jesus fully is. It'd be common in Jesus' day for people to follow uh, a particular rabbi. That wasn't unusual, but Jesus didn't fit the mold of the normal rabbi, right? To follow him is not some trivial question you decide to do over coffee. You know, which rabbi are you going to follow? And Jesus had homes available to him. You know, the, uh, he, as he and the disciples would travel, they would have people host them. But Jesus here is calling for a separation by commitment to follow despite the reality of potential homelessness, which inevitably means choosing a life of insecurity. I'm not talking about insecurity in your soul, but insecurity about where your next meal is going to come from, how you're going to make the, the house note, right? Not an insecure heavenly future, but an insecure earthly path. The decision to follow Christ was more a test of their degree of commitment. Church, everyone in this room needs to count the cost of discipleship. I am ready for the Lord to pour out his Holy Spirit on our church. And he's been doing that and bringing people into our fellowship from other, uh, other places who, who are already believers but want to be part of this church fellowship. He's also bringing new believers that we baptize into, into the faith and where we praise God for their faith. And their obedience in baptism as a symbol of that. I'm ready for that. But we don't want to fill the seats here with people who do not understand the genuine cost of discipleship. Jesus' answer here is kind of shocking to me. This scribe who's publicly separating himself from all his other homies, his other little buddy scribes, He's making this bold statement in public, uh, verse 19, chapter 8, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's quite the commitment. I think I would have said, y'all, you know, praise God, y'all praise the Lord for Bill, man, he's come forward and he's, he's given, you know, yes, amen, you know, like clap, you know, we're, we're like pumping him up. That's not what he does. <laughs> He says, uh, you know, I would have, you know, some people say, uh, well, you know, why don't you just come check us out? You know, follow us around for a few days. See me do some miracles. See if it's right for you. Right. <laughs> then we'll cut you in on this whole eternal contract stuff. Well, let me tell you something, church. Jesus ain't no trial run teacher. There are no trial runs. And I believe Jesus very lovingly is warning this courageous scribe that when the hype of the day is over and the crowds have dispersed and the miracles have ceased, we ain't hopping in a chariot and rolling back to our cribs and crawling into our own comfy beds. All right? We're going on forward. And you need to understand that. Now, look, I don't think or believe that Jesus is commanding every Christian in this room to go overseas to reach the lost. He is commanding us all to reach the lost and to spread the gospel. But I don't believe he's calling all of us to sell houses and cars and land to go follow him. Not all of us, but I do believe he's calling some of you. I believe that. I believe God will call people out of this church to leave everything to follow him. And even if we're not called to go 
to a foreign land, even those of us who are still here and have homes are still called to follow Christ in such a way that we taste the insecurities of this life. Do you live for Christ in such a way that you can taste the insecurity? I think fully committed, generous followers of Jesus give of their lives and their money in such a way that they forfeit some security. Some of y'all think y'all need another million dollars in the bank and you're not sacrificing for God. And buddy, you could be dead tomorrow. And I don't care about your money. I don't care where you send it. That's between you and Jesus. But I'm just telling you what the Bible, what Jesus is calling for in these moments. I may not be called to what, or you may not be called to what someone else is called to, but is your yes on the table? Would you go if you were called? Would I give, even if it didn't meet the retirement plan that my financial advisor said was best for me? That's not a wise decision. That's not good stewardship, Went. Do I need to store up one more barn? Buy one more thing before I begin to sacrifice? That very thought defies what it means to serve Christ at all costs. Listen, Jesus wasn't being mean or harsh. He's actually being courteous, courteous enough to manage expectations versus reality, which is at the very core of many of, of our earthly frustrations, right? Things don't go as planned, we're upset, but what if we had a God who told us from the very beginning, homelessness is on the table. Is homelessness on the table for you to follow me? Then come on. I'm not saying you're gonna be homeless, but I don't have a place to lay my head. Are you prepared for that? I hope we're ready. If we have that mentality, we'll be like Corey Tim Boom when she was taken into the Nazi concentration camps. She didn't abandon her faith. She still found joy because she understood the cost of following Jesus or the thousands upon thousands of missionaries for the last two millennia who have given their life and homes and lands to go and take the gospel to unreached people. This is still happening right now. People are still dying trying to take the gospel where it's not been taken. Right now, as we sit here, <laughs> there's someone around the world being tortured for their faith. As I preach, I guarantee it. I've seen literal pictures. I've met men. I've seen scars where people defended themselves with machetes. And not because they were some arrogant street corner preacher ramming the gospel down someone's throat with a big oversized Bible. I'm talking people who lovingly go to these villages in kind ways and still are abused for their faith. Sacrifice is different than bad stewardship. If your earthly biblical wisdom rules out sacrifice, if you care more about your home than you do following Jesus, God's got an object lesson for you today. Don't get in the boat. Well, second, postponement must be off the table. Homelessness needs to be on the table, but postponement needs to be off the table. Now, this verse for years has seemed harsh to many people, all right? But I think a simple explanation will solve all that, all right? Matthew 8, 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, at face value, it sounds like Jesus saying, if you go to your dad's funeral, you don't love me. 
right? <laughs> and that is not what's going on here, all right? The, now, the ceremonies surrounding a funeral back then could go on for a week or two. But the, they had to bury the body quickly, right? They didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have some of the things we have now. Uh, and so they would try to bury, put the body in the ground or in a tomb within 12 to 24 hours. That was, you look up, most historians will tell you that. So is Jesus just being impatient? I mean, does he have a plane to catch, a train to hop on? What, why can't he wait just one extra day, maybe attend the funeral and have some witnessing opportunities, Jesus? Man, you could do a miracle there at that funeral and bring the whole group to Christ. That's not what's going on here. I, and I agree with other scholars, and I believe this myself, that the disciple's dad that's mentioned here is not actually dead yet. MacArthur says the phrase, I must bury my father, was a common figure of speech, meaning let me wait until I receive my inheritance. So church, this was more an issue of indefinite postponement. I'll go, but not yet. I'm ready, God, to follow you, but... I mean, when I do it, I want to be all in, and I'm just not all in yet. Well, you may never be. Jesus doesn't lack the patience to attend a funeral, but the disciples may lack the commitment to follow Christ right then. And this doesn't mean that we don't have, uh, that we don't ever have to leave extended family to serve Christ. We may have to. Matthew 19, 29 says, and everyone who has left uh, houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands and we're not talking about infant babies there um, for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life right we, we do have a new family in Christ right you are my church family I love my grandparents all my grandparents are deceased now but I love them and when I went, my wife and my family first moved overseas, my dear grandmother, who I grew up just a couple of miles from, uh, who babysat me all the time. I have so many memories of Grandma Fox. Uh, she died literally just within weeks of me getting on the mission field. And I couldn't come home for a funeral. I sent a video uh, and things, but it was the first time in my life I had a little small fraction of knowledge of what it meant to count the cost of discipleship, you know, like biblically. This, this one's actually mentioned in scripture. But church, I want you to know something. I have women in this church just like Miss Betty who are like my grandparents, who are like my mothers. You women in this church, you're like my sisters in the Lord. And you men, you're like my brothers. And you older men, you're like fathers, grandfathers, in the faith, and you younger men and women, you're like my children in the faith, my sons and daughters. Proverbs 18, 24 says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 27, 10, better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. How many of you as believers have met someone on the other side of the world and you're closer to them than your own cousin at your family reunion? Maybe your own brother or sister. Because you have this camaraderie, this common bond in the faith of Jesus that's almost unexplainable. 1 Timothy 5 verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. But here's the thing. Indefinite excuses, postponed sacrifice and commitment 
It's like a litmus test. It's a separation gate for the sheepfold of God. (laughs) Church, I still do not fully know, and neither do you, what your faith is going to cost you. We don't know. We've had a little taste of it maybe in the last few years. But we don't know. I don't know. But I pray to God I'll, I'll be committed when the time comes for my faith to be tested. It could cost time with extended family. It did me. It could cost creature comforts and cause us to forfeit things familiar. I'm a homebody. I love my home. But I may have to forfeit those things familiar to obey God. But I'll tell you this, it's a commitment that cannot be postponed. Matthew 8, 23 says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Church, we need to count the cost. And let me just add here, my new family in the faith (laughs) is not really much of a sacrifice to me. I love my family in the Lord. This passage holds a separation of true disciples, but it also holds the frustration of timid dependency. Jesus had just given two examples, uh, or we could call them true faith requirements for following Jesus, right? Of course, those who got in the boat were already obviously serious, but then those serious disciples (laughs) that got in that boat Within two hours, this happens. Matthew 8, 24. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep, Jesus was. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. I think Mark's account says, don't you care that we're about to die, right? Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you you of little faith? I'm sorry, what did you just say? Squish, squish, rocking boat, waves coming over the bow. Why am I afraid? (laughs) So Jesus wakes up to two problems, right? First, the destructive storm. That word for storm that Matthew chose to use there is the word for shaking, literally shaking. And it was usually only applied to an earthquake. But I believe he uses that to just to say just how violent the storm really was, just how dangerous the situation had gotten. Now, here's the crazy thing. Jesus is God in human flesh. He's God, fully God, but he's fully man. But the disciples have yet to really fully understand the deity side of it, right? And, they, you know, of course, they see Jesus as a rabbi and a teacher. And Jesus had just referred to himself as uh the son of man, which I could unpack that forever. He then puts those human qualities on full display during this boat ride, right? And I'm sure there's other reasons that I'll never know why Jesus was asleep in the bottom of that boat in the sovereign knowledge of God. But I think one of them was because he was exhausted. When you spend relentless amounts of time with people ministering to the needs of others, um, you, you, you're worn out. Y'all know y'all can barely endure your own family reunion, right? <laughs> About 30 minutes in, you're like, you know, I need a break. I wish I smoked so I could go take a smoke break, right? And I, we're talking about the, the people of God. And so I think Jesus took a power nap because he was exhausted. Now, the trip was only a one or two hours long. 
But I don't want y'all to miss the context here. Jesus had just given two verbal explanations of the cost of discipleship. Then they literally step into a boat and within hours and encounter this storm. And, and Jesus had just been telling them verbally, listen, the earthly side of your future is insecure if you're following me. All things familiar and safe and comfortable to you need to be on the table of your faith. From your living conditions to your earthly retirement package. That's all up for grabs. You're following me. And then Jesus allows the context to get unbelievably real, right? Like we're not talking about might get dangerous, right? We're talking boat sinking, life-threatening, heart-wrenching, right now dangerous. It's not a potential hazard anymore. It's happening. Like that saying, you know, by the time a man realizes maybe his father was right, he usually has a son who thinks he's wrong. <laughs> You're in the middle of it when you figure it out. For Christ's disciples to understand the foolishness of timid, half-hearted dependency, they had to have their robes drenched in salt water in a rocking boat with Jesus asleep. Jesus woke up to a destructive storm and second, to a destructive faith. Now, every 4th of July... My extended family gets together and has a reunion in Smithville, Tennessee. We got a picture of that. It may have popped up a minute ago. You know, like, who are all those weird people? There's my family, some of them. There's my mama over the right. She's bossing me around right there, telling me this picture's not going to have us all in it. All right? And I love family reunions. And we go up there to Smithville, the home of the Fiddler's Jamboree, and we get out on the lake. And when we get out on the lake, sometimes we go over to this cliff. We, we surf and wakeboard, and then we go to some rock quarries. Y'all have seen rednecks jump off cliffs before. That's not new to this church, I'm sure. Been there, done that. But I, I tell the kids when I get up there with them, I'm like, look, I know you're seven, but you can do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I push them, little nudge. <laughs> no, what I tell them is, hey, step out. Even though the cliff's straight down, you need to step out. You know, don't come up here to play around and slip off the side and crack your skull and blame it on Uncle Wynn. You get out there, right? Or I'm going to help you get out there with a little swift kick, right? And what does this have to do with timid dependency? <laughs> well, everything. Jesus isn't watching a grown man scream over a cobweb in his face or an itsy bitsy spider. You know, he's not rebuking the, the, the weak faith while lightning strikes in the far distance. Can't even hardly hear the thunder, right? This isn't getting, you know, picked on in a, in a, in your, at school at a lunch table or in your work group, you know. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Big deal. Even the demons believe and shudder. Matthew 5, 47 says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Big deal. It's like Jesus is saying, this is faith standard. In the boat, soaking wet, waves over the side, this is actually where faith starts. You think this is the pinnacle. No, son, you don't have a clue. Remember, Jesus is all-knowing. And back in Matthew chapter 4, he had called the first three disciples, Peter, James, and John. So we believe they were there in the boat with him. And he, I believe he's, he's, he's saying, you know, you're going to become martyrs for your faith. 
right? What, what are you telling me? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. You think this is tough? It's like watching a little kid carry groceries, help his mom carry groceries into the house, and he's complaining the whole way. And I'm like, son, you're, you're whining to the woman who was 12 hours in labor with your fat head, right? That woman experienced more pain in your childbirth than she's ever felt before or since, unless she has more than one kid, <laughs> right? And you're going to whine to her about a plastic bag of groceries? You need to be, check yourself, right? You think this is hard? Try single parenting. Try working for a boss who acts like he's the spawn of Satan. Try busting your tail all day to come home and cook for your kids only to have them complain about it. Try having the weight of the world on your shoulders. You think babies are dependent because all they do is eat, sleep, and poop? Try a 16-year-old who eats, sleeps, and poop. Only it costs a whole lot more, right? More cars, more insurance, phones, college tuition, clothes, and a lot more lip than a two-year-old. You, when you get to that point, you're not even at the mid-level of difficulty, son. <laughs> Where do your loved ones start to die around you? Where do your heart gets broken? Where do you have a rebellious child wander away from the faith? Where do you watch your sins pile, pile upon you all this smothering regret in your life? then you might be getting close. Jesus says, you're scared the boat's going to sink? I'm about to send you men out in three years to take the gospel to the entire known world. You're the lifeguards carrying the life raft of salvation, the gospel message that I've entrusted to you. You're about to take that to the whole world and you're scared of water? 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear. Now there are bad fear. There are bad fears. Uh, I mean good fears in the Bible. Fear of God. This is not that word. This is the word dilos. That word is phobos. phobos. But Matthew 8 26, that same word for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. It's the same word used here of afraid. Matthew 8 26, why are you afraid? It describes a person who loses the moral gumption or fortitude needed to follow the Lord. Listen, church, sometimes God has to play catch up because our sanctification starting blocks are too far behind, right? The pace that we're currently on in our level of maturity with Christ is just too slow. Ephesians 4.15 says, we are to grow up in every way into him, into Christ. You don't get to heaven on half faith. They know just enough faith. There's no such thing, friend. They know fire insurance faith. It's either forward faith, sacrificial faith, or no faith. There's no in between. There's the separation of true disciples, the frustration of our timid dependency, and finally, the illustration of his triumphant deity. They're stuck in a treacherous storm. Things are bad. Things are life-threatening. But they're in the boat with the God who made the rain and the sea and the wood the boat's made out of and the breath that's in their lungs. He is the God-man 
Christ incarnate. Tired enough to sleep, but strong enough to save. Amen. Historians say William E. Sangster was a British Methodist preacher, actually known for calling the Methodist denomination uh, to stick to its biblical roots during the mid-1900s. He passed away in 1960. But Sangster, in his book, The Craft uh, of the Sermon, tells of the last sermon J.N. Figgis uh, preached at the University of Cambridge. Now, Figgis died in 1919, and Figgis was actually an Anglican priest. And I don't, just because I quote people don't, doesn't mean I agree with every doctrinal part of their lives. But I love how Sangster describes Figgis' last sermon. Listen to this. This is in June 2nd, 1918. After nearly four years of grueling war, they were in the middle of war, World War, the Allies were being driven back again. In that tense atmosphere of national fear, he started with the text, Psalm 29, verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And then Figgis began at once with one tense question. Does he? Does he? Church, does the Lord sit enthroned over the flood, over the flood of your disappointment and your problems and your illness, over the flood of your prayers yet to be unanswered, over the storms that shake the very foundations of your soul? Does he sit enthroned above them? Then the next verse should be a blessing to you. Psalm 29, 11, may the Lord give strength to his people May the Lord bless his people with peace. Now Mark's account of this miracle actually records the words of Jesus' rebuke. We don't have them in Matthew. It just says he rebuked them. But, but Mark records the actual words. And he didn't say destruction cease. <laughs> he says, Mark 4.39, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I'm going to have to close with these two statements here. God is above the storm, but Jesus is in that boat. And I believe the disciples, the Lord let the disciples miss that fact 2,000 years ago so that today we wouldn't. Amen. Now we're going to enter into a time of the Lord's Supper. And this is really, you think Jesus calming the storm was a miracle. <laughs> you think that was a storm. The storm of God's wrath that everyone in this room deserved was coming until Jesus died on that cross. And it was at once satisfied through the gift of faith and repentance when we call on the name of the Lord. And this is a perfect picture of that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without 
without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, after I, I pray in just a moment, uh, you're going to be dismissed to go to the several, there's five or six Lord's Supper tables spread out through the sanctuary. If you get to one and you run out there, you can make your way to another one. But in there, if you're a born-again believer, you're welcome to participate. There's two cups stacked on top of each other. The bottom one is the bread, and the top one is the wine juice. And if you'll take both of those and return to your seats, and then you can take the Lord's Supper at will. You may want to pray first. You may want to explain to your kids what's going on. But after I pray, you'll be free to do that. So why don't we stand? And right after I pray, we're going to go right into a time of invitation. If people are here today that do not know the Lord, this will be the chance for you to call on the name of the Lord and be saved and make that public. Or people that want to join Piperton Family of Faith and get involved in the ministries that we have here by serving in some capacity, then you can come forward and do that at that time. Father God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the elements that represent the broken body and the precious, perfect blood that was poured out for us. Lord, more, more treacherous than the storm of the seas, even if it was a tsunami, <laughs> it wouldn't be compared to hell. An eternity of separation from God and an eternal punishment for my sin, which can never be satisfied because I'm not good enough to pay for it. Or I could call on the name of Jesus. I could cry out to God in repentance and say, God, save me, forgive me. And I could trust in this, this bread and this body. What we take today in the Lord's Supper may be symbolic, but you, you are not. You are real, you are alive, and you came to this earth to willingly give up your body for us. And we celebrate that now, not in mourning, but in rejoicing that we are a free people, forgiven by the precious blood of Jesus. I pray after this time of Lord's Supper that you would bless our time of invitation, God, time of response, that we would be obedient in whatever you're leading us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.